0: So, I want us to take a quick look tonight at the Lord's Prayer. Um, you know, sometimes the Lord speaks to us through the simplest scriptures, things that we've known since we were a child, but then we find out we really didn't know them. And so, we're going to begin tonight in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Uh, You find the Lord's Prayer both here in Luke 11 and then a little bit more complete version in Matthew chapter 6. But I think Luke 11 gives us a little bit of a better starting point to understand what prompted Jesus to give us this prayer. And so we read in Luke 11... Starting at verse 1, and I'm going to be reading tonight from the New King James Version, just to mix it up a little bit, and it says, It came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, of course this is Jesus, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And that's what prompted him giving the following verses of the Lord's Prayer. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I've pointed out many times over the years, never once do you find in the four Gospels, the disciples going to Jesus and asking him to teach them how to preach, to teach them even how to cast out a demon, or how to heal the sick. No doubt he gave them instructions in all of those areas of ministry, but it's always struck me that this is the one thing that they saw in Jesus' life that impacted them so deeply that it caused them to make this request, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And so the Lord's Prayer was given as a direct answer or response to that request. And I want us to now look in Matthew's version, because it's a little more complete, and it's actually the version that was being sung there in what we just heard. Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 9 to 13. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. Jesus says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. A couple things I want to point out before we even go into the details here. In verse 9, Jesus starts off by saying, In this manner, therefore, pray. And remember, he's responding to their request, teach us how to pray. So he says, all right, here is the manner in which you should pray. I would first of all point out that just based on the previous few verses here in Matthew 6, uh, I'm going to read verses 7 and 8, He had just finished telling them, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And then he goes right into giving this pattern for prayer. And it's sad, but in many, many churches, the Lord's Prayer has just become something that we have memorized and we sort of vainly repeat it by rote rather than understanding that when Jesus gave this prayer, I don't think he was saying, memorize this prayer and repeat it, you know, every so often. I think he was giving us more of a form that would give us the structure of how to approach God in prayer. And rather than something to be vainly repeated, I think there's a tremendous amount we can learn just from these few short lines uh, that probably most of us know by memory. But Like I say, this past week, the Holy Spirit has really been speaking to me through this and showing me things that maybe I thought I knew, but I didn't. So hopefully the Holy Spirit will teach us some new things here tonight. First of all, one way that I can look at this prayer, um, it's sort of like a form that you would follow most uh, word processing programs like Microsoft or others. They'll even give you a form that you can follow when you're writing a business letter or a formal letter. And it has the salutation and the address and the body of the letter and the date and the closing and all of those things. This really is is kind of a form letter like that. And I don't think we have to say these exact words, but I think Jesus is teaching us There is a certain structure or a certain form that you can see throughout the Bible in different prayers that are mentioned of how we should approach God in our prayers. And notice it starts off with the salutation, Our Father. And I'm going to come back and talk more about each one of these points, but It's addressed to someone, and it doesn't say when you pray, pray God or Almighty One. It says when you pray, understand that you're praying to your Father, our Father. And then it gives His address where He lives, our Father who lives in heaven. That's his address. And then, of course, the body of the letter are the specific requests. And we're going to look at each one of those. There are actually six different requests that are specifically listed in the prayer. And my favorite part is it gives the date, today. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, not I hope one day this happens, but give us this day our daily bread. So the date of this letter, the date of this prayer is always now, today. I'm talking to the great I Am, who's always the the very present God. And then the closing to the whole prayer, the closing to the whole letter, is, Yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Man, when they sang that in that video, I about went through the roof. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. And then, the final seal the closing to the whole letter Amen. And I think we all know what Amen means, but we're going to come back and look at each one of these points briefly. Going back to verse 6, the opening salutation. When we pray, Jesus says, understand you're praying to your Father. And Only a few times in the Old Testament are there indirect references to God being Israel's father. But when we come to the New Testament, this was a revelation that Jesus brought over and over and over. I think I made a note somewhere here. Let me see where it is. uh, If you're interested in trivia... 181 times in his teachings and prayers in the four Gospels, Jesus referred to God as Father. 181 times. So, pretty significant. And I think we all understand that there's a difference between praying to Almighty God, who's somewhere out there in heaven, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, and bringing it down to this personal level of you're my Father, God is my Father. And many scriptures we could look at, we're not going to do it tonight, but these are things we've talked about before. It, It brings into this whole discussion the idea of a relationship with god where i am now his son i am his daughter i have been born again i've been born of god i've been born into this family i am now related by birth to god and there are so many scriptures that talk about birth rights our right as a child of god and it it changes our whole approach to God, when we begin our prayer with that understanding, I'm not praying to an impersonal, almighty God. I'm praying to an almighty God who is also my Abba. He's my Father. And another thing I want to really emphasize here, notice this whole prayer begins with the pronoun our It's not my Father, it's our Father in Heaven. So, this prayer is designed to be a corporate prayer. And it takes on a whole new character when we are praying together as the corporate body of Christ, as the family, the fellowship of believers. And I've spoken on this, on previous occasions. You can look anywhere you want in the New Testament. There's no place in the scriptures for what I call a lone ranger Christian. Oh, I'll just stay home and pray by myself and read my Bible by myself and get my own revelations about God and do my great ministry all by myself. It's totally unbiblical. The whole purpose of the New Testament is to reveal to us God's plan is to bring together a church, a body, a fellowship of believers. All of the different members, diverse as they are, they're intimately and spiritually connected into this one body called the church, called the Bride of Christ. And so, I don't think it's any accident that this whole prayer is set in the first person, plural. Our Father, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. So, we are encouraged, I think, in the very pattern of this prayer. And certainly it's wonderful to pray On your own and we should pray without ceasing but there's an importance to corporate prayer there's a there's an added power there's a there's a totally different dimension that comes when we pray together as a body and you know the amazing thing is not only does Jesus here tell us to pray to God our Father, but you have other scriptures like Hebrews chapter 2:11. You don't need to turn there, but there it says that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to call you and me brother and sister. And obviously, God is not ashamed to be called Our Father. What a wonderful thing that we can come to God the same way a little child can come to his Father with that kind of intimate relationship, with that understanding of his love, his care, his concern. I'm related to you, Father, so I'm coming to you as your child. Like I said, this is a relationship that was hinted at in the Old Testament, but it only becomes a reality in the New Covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said, we must be born again. When we're born again, we can truly now call on God as our Father. And in Galatians, it talks about how we now have the full rights of sons. There are birth rights conferred upon the children. And so because we are now related to God by birth, there's an inheritance. There are certain legal rights that have been passed on to us as His children. And I want to move along. I don't want to stay too long on any one of these points, although I could. We could spend weeks on this short little five or six verses, whatever it is, five verses. But it goes on to say, Our Father in Heaven. And, you know, you find in the Bible, both Jesus and others, sometimes when they prayed, They lifted their eyes, literally, up toward heaven. And I find sometimes it helps me when I'm praying uh, to open my eyes and look up into the sky. I used to think it was irreverent to pray with your eyes open, but, you know, the Bible says pray without ceasing. So you can pray with your eyes open, pray with your eyes closed. You can pray kneeling. You can pray laying on your bed. You can pray in the bathtub. You can pray in the shower. You can pray when you're driving your car. Pray, pray, pray. Pray without ceasing. But understand to whom you're praying and where he is. These are the first two important things we learn in this pattern that Jesus gave us. Our Father in Heaven. The Bible says to set our affection On things above, not on things of the earth. So this immediately sort of resets our focus. It takes our eyes off of the earth, off of earthly things, off of earthly concerns, and we're turning our attention toward heaven and the God who lives in heaven. The Bible says heaven is God's throne. And it's a throne of grace. And so when we're coming before God in prayer, we're understanding that we're coming up into heavenly places. We're coming before a heavenly throne, which is His throne of grace. And James says when we pray, we are praying with an understanding that every good gift comes from the Father above. Notice that. From the Father of lights, who is above. So, when you're praying, I think it's helpful to remember, we're not looking to earth for the answers to our problems. We're not looking to the earth for the resources that we need. We're looking to heaven. All of our resources, all of our help, comes from heaven And it comes from our Father who is in heaven. Then it goes on to say, Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. And I think the Spanish Bible and maybe some of the other translations actually get it a little closer to the original Greek. It literally means sanctified, santificado, sanctified be your name. Well, sanctified means set apart, it means holy. And we could replace that with words like reverend or reverenced, honored, exalted, respected, uh, these are all terms that come to mind when I hear that word, hallowed be your name. And there's something else very important, I think, for us to learn in this little pattern of prayer that Jesus is giving us. Notice we start by putting our eyes on God, realizing that He's our Father, understanding where He is, He's in heaven, And before we've asked for anything, we begin with praise, with worship, with exalting God for who he is. Hallowed be your name. Consecrated, sanctified, holy is your name. And it's interesting, there are a number of scriptures, we don't have time to look at them tonight, But the opposite is often the case because of the way, particularly God's people, live their lives. The scriptures say that God's name is profaned. His name actually becomes unholy or treated as an unholy thing because of the way we live. So our very life must be in line with... God and His character in order for His name to be hallowed, in order for His name not to be profaned by our unholy living. And you know, one of the most common complaints, I I actually had uh, a person call me yesterday, They're, they're not really walking with the Lord, I'm not even sure if they're saved, But they've seen things which you and I have probably seen also in certain Christians whose life does not really line up with what they preach, and they were quite stumbled by some of the ungodly or unchristian behaviors that they've seen in other Christians. And I made no attempt to excuse that. I said, you know, look, we've all failed God. We've all fallen short, and I'm not going to in any way condone that. However, we want to live holy lives. We want to live a Christian life that brings glory and honor and praise to God so that His name is, is sanctified. His name is hallowed and praised and exalted and not profaned. So it's interesting that in this opening line of the prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we've not asked for anything yet. All we're doing is acknowledging who he is, where he is, and the glory that he deserves. And only in verse 10 do we begin to get into specific requests. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Man, I've been really... Meditating on that one all week long. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And it's very specific. On earth. As it is. In heaven. So God's kingdom. Is in heaven. God's perfect will. Is always done. In heaven. But now. What we're requesting, what we're praying for, is, Lord, let your kingdom be manifested here on earth. Let your will be done here on earth. And I also want you to notice there are actually three requests that you can find here in verses 9 and 10 of the prayer. Let your name be hallowed, let your kingdom come, and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice those first three requests have nothing to do with our personal needs. The next three requests, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, those have more to do with with our personal needs, but the opening requests of this prayer are all God-centered prayers. And I think there's a powerful lesson there for us to learn if we want to know how to pray correctly. James says very often our prayers are not answered because we're asking amiss. We're not asking correctly. I think one Bible says our motives are not Correct. So we can pray, 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 Lord, give me a new job, give me a better house, give me a new car, give me this, gimme, 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 gimme. But we've got things out of order. We need to get the priorities right first. God is first, God's kingdom is first, and God's will is first. So when you pray, first pray. Lord, let your kingdom come on earth. Let it be manifested here in the United States, in Maryland, in Ohio, or wherever we are. Let your kingdom come into my house, into my life, into my experience. This brings it down from heaven to earth. We, we, we move sort of from the theoretical into the practical, into the realm of reality. It's one thing to, you know, pray these high and lofty prayers, but to say, Lord, let this now come down to earth. Let it be something that works in my life day to day. That's a whole different kind of a prayer. And... Without going into a lot of detail tonight, the Scripture has a lot to say about the Kingdom of God, and we often need to refocus, I know I do, we need to refocus on the Kingdom of God, because our tendency is to get caught up in the world, get caught up in earthly things, And we need to be reminded it's all about God's kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And sadly, we often have other things that are first, other priorities that come ahead of the kingdom of God. Just to digress a little bit here, um, I want us to look at one scripture that talks about the kingdom of God. It's found in John 18 and verse 36. This is when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate. And Jesus makes this bold declaration. He's about to go to the cross. And he is not the least bit afraid of Pilate, or the Romans, or the Jews, or anybody else, he boldly declares in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. You know... I find I have to often remind myself this isn't about the kingdoms of this world. It's about the kingdom of God. The book of Revelation says there's a day coming soon where all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of his Lord and Christ. Daniel saw all of the kingdoms of this world being smashed and replaced by one kingdom, the kingdom of God. We need to stop putting our trust in politicians, in earthly governments, in earthly kingdoms. They are all ultimately going to fail. They are all ultimately going to crumble. And I don't care whether you're American, or Sri Lankan, or Korean, or Guyanese, or whatever nationality you're is, you are. We need to stop focusing on the earthly, and we need to focus more and more of our attention, and more of our praying, on the Kingdom of God. Now, we're called to pray for our government leaders, that's all good and well. We should pray for the president. We should pray for the Congress. We should pray for the leaders of whatever country we live in. But we should also be praying specifically, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here in America as it is in heaven, here in India as it is in heaven. You know, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, I want to go there quickly. Philippians 3, verse 20, it says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. I like that. My citizenship is first and foremost in heaven. I may have a U.S. passport and I need that, to travel around from country to country, but I'm going to be honest with you, my citizenship is not American. And we need to get this right. Jesus is not coming for a Korean church, an American church, a Guyanese church, or a Sri Lankan church. He's coming for one holy nation made up of every tribe, every tongue, every nation on the earth, who have been formed and united together by the Holy Spirit into one body, one Bride of Christ, one holy nation. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding and give us this revelation. This is not something that comes through natural wisdom or understanding. This is a spiritual revelation that the Holy Spirit has to give us, That our citizenship is in heaven. God is my Father. I am a member of the family of God. And it's no longer about whether I'm an American, whether I'm a male or a female. We are all one in Christ. And there's, last time I checked, there aren't two or three or twenty. Different bodies of Christ. There's one body of Christ, and Jesus is coming for one holy bride. Thy kingdom come on earth. I've been praying that a lot lately, and I don't know about you, but when I look at the kingdoms of this world, including the kingdom of the United States, it's messed up. Man, these government leaders, they are in such a state of confusion. It's not even funny. And the Bible predicts that this is going to happen in these last days. That the wisdom, the discernment, the judgment of these government leaders is going to leave them. And I think we're seeing that and witnessing that more and more each day. Some of the laws that these legislators are passing, some of the decisions that court judges are, are passing down, they're absolutely insane. It makes no sense whatsoever. And we need to get our eyes off of these government leaders, government officials, pray for them, yes. But more specifically, we need to be praying, Lord, let your kingdom come. And when we've studied the kingdom of God, it's interesting, most of the scriptures that I can find, with the exception of the parables, where Jesus often, he would start off a parable with, the kingdom of God is like." And then he would say it's like a sower sowing seed, or like a wedding. He gave so many parables to help us visualize what the kingdom is like. When you read through Paul's letters, most of the references that I can find where he refers to the kingdom of God, he tells us what it's not. And even Jesus did this. Uh, He said the kingdom of God is not visible. It doesn't come with outward manifestations. The kingdom of God is inside you. And I'll just read these verses quickly. Um, We're not going to take the time to look them up, but if you want the references, I can give them to you. Uh, For instance, in Romans 14, verse 17, Paul says the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking. It's not eating or drinking, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual kingdom. It has nothing to do with eating, drinking, earthly things, carnal things, and that's repeated in another way in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50, where Paul says, "...flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with flesh, it has nothing to do with carnal things. And yet we often want to try to mix the two and make the kingdom of God something earthly, something carnal, something American or Chinese or Korean. It has nothing to do with any of that. The kingdom of God is not flesh and blood. It is not carnal. It is not of this world. There's another verse I like, and it's another one of these, what the kingdom of God is not, found in 1 Corinthians 4.20. The kingdom of God is not talk. It's not a matter of talk, but it is the power of God. Kingdom of God is not just a bunch of words, it's the manifestation of God's power. And it comes through the manifestation, the gifts, the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not by might, it's not by human institutions, but it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. So, We've only gotten into the second line of this prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and then your will be done, and I think the next part applies to both of those requests, on earth as it is in heaven. We want God's kingdom, which is already present in heaven, We want it to come now into our earthly sphere, into our earthly realm, into our earthly life. And if you look at all these different scriptures that speak about the kingdom of God, we can begin to pray more specifically, Lord, let this kingdom be manifested in me, a kingdom of righteousness, peace, And joy in the Holy Spirit a kingdom of the power of God Lord let the power of your Holy Spirit operate mightily in my life now right here on this earth let the kingdom of God transform the governments of our states the government of our nation, which is moving further and further and further away from God and his principles, we have been given this authority to pray the kingdom down. Lord, let your kingdom come into the White House. Let your kingdom come into the Supreme Court. Let your kingdom come into the Congress and into the Senate. And let The kingdom of God influence the thinking and the judgment of all of these lawmakers and government officials. Now, let's talk about the second part of this request. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, there's no problem with God's will being done in heaven. Actually, there there was a problem, we know that from certain scriptures, that historically there was a problem at one time with Lucifer and apparently quite a number of other angels who decided they didn't want to do God's will, they wanted to do it their way. And, of course, they're suffering the consequences. Lucifer was cast down, and the angels that joined in that rebellion against God's will, Peter tells us they're wrapped in chains, being held in dungeons, awaiting a final judgment for their rebellion. So, make no mistake, God's will is always done in heaven, because heaven is God's kingdom. And kingdom implies government. It implies rule, reign, laws. God has laws by which he operates his kingdom. And we're told here that his will is always done in heaven. The problem is on earth. And that's why we need to be praying, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And obviously, by extension, each one of us can make this personal. Lord, let your will be done in my life. Not my will, but your will be done. And while we're here in Matthew, um, let's look at a scripture This is one of the most frightening passages in all of the Bible. And those of you that know me have heard me refer to this often. Because, like I say, I I think it's the scariest scripture in all of the Bible. Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Notice the connection between the kingdom of heaven and doing the will of God. They're inseparable. It doesn't matter what we say. We can say, Lord, 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 all day long. Just saying it doesn't matter because those who are going to enter the kingdom those who are going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, they all have one common denominator. They do the will of the Father in heaven. So let me read this again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Here's the part that scares me. Verse 22. Many, not a few, many will be saying to me, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. So many who have been calling him Lord, Lord, but more than that, we have, have we not prophesied in your name? Notice that. They were prophesying in his name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. Let me read that again. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Man, we're so impressed. When a minister comes to visit the church and he gives prophecies and casts out demons and performs amazing signs and wonders, boy, everybody trembles and practically kisses the ground that the man walks on. Jesus is not the least bit impressed. Verse 23, he says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but first of all, he doesn't discount the fact that they had done these things. He could have easily said, Oh, wait a minute, you're making that up in your head. You never really prophesied. You never cast out demons. You never did any wonders. He, he doesn't disagree with them. They had done all of these things. And this is not to take away from people who have a genuine gift to prophesy, to cast out demons, and to do wonders in Christ's name. Those are all things we find in the Bible. What's the problem then? The problem is they were doing all these things, even calling him Lord, Lord, but obviously they were not doing The will of the Father in heaven. And that's how he begins this whole discussion. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So not only do we need to preach and teach and prophesy and cast out demons and walk on water and heal the sick, those are all great things to do. But we need to go beyond that and pray, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done in my life. And many, many scriptures in the New Testament, some of them are actually prayers that Paul was praying for the church, that we would be filled with wisdom, with knowledge, with understanding, so that we can do God's will. This is the ultimate goal that every Christian needs to have. It's not just, I want to have a big ministry, or I want to be able to do mighty signs and wonders. That may or may not be a part of it, but our biggest prayer should be, Lord, I want to do your will. What is your will for my life? Not my will, but your will be done. Now, moving along in this prayer, so far we've acknowledged our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Only in the next line do we begin to ask anything for our own personal needs. And God is concerned about our needs. He's very concerned about our needs. And so, the next part of the prayer, Give us this day our daily bread. Every one of those words is important. I don't know about you, but I want God to give me all my monthly needs, so I can be done with it, and I don't have to worry about it again until March. Lord, just take care of everything I'm going to be needing for the next month, so I don't have to pray anymore till March. That's really what we're saying. I don't want to have to keep coming back to you every day for my needs. But there's a I think there's an important revelation here about God's heart. He wants us coming to Him daily. He wants us to have a daily dependence on Him. Because He knows our human nature. If we have all of our needs met for the month, we're probably not going to pray to Him for a while until we're in need again. And God wants us in this continual state of dependence on Him. And, I don't know about you, but I I know God knows this about me. Uh, If I have all my needs met, and if there are no real problems in my life, it's inevitable. My prayers, they start to trail off a little bit. They're not quite as intense as when... I have a $3,000 bill due by noon tomorrow. And this one little line teaches me something, I think, very profound about God's character and the sort of relationship that he's wanting to have with me and with each one of us. He wants us depending on him daily, every day. Lord, give me this day my daily bread. And I don't think this is just referring specifically to the food, bread. Bread is often used in a broader sense in the Bible to speak about our sustenance, to speak about all that we need for our day-to-day life. Give me my daily needs this day, this day. And if you drop down further in the chapter in Matthew 6, he has just finished telling them, you know, don't worry about what you're going to eat, don't worry about what you're going to drink, Don't worry about what kind of clothes you're going to have to put on. And, of course, those are the things that consume most of our time and attention. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? Where am I going to live? What kind of clothes am I going to have to wear? And he says in verse 26, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns. Yet your heavenly Father, remember, our Father in heaven, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? You know, I I love to look at nature movies and, and learn about the animals and the amazing ways that God has designed them, and the amazing ways that he takes care of them. And each animal, God provides for and cares for in a unique way. Some animals live in the mud, some animals live up in the trees. uh, Just a whole array of different homes God provides for the animals to live in. But I don't think any of them worry about where they're going to live tomorrow. They don't even worry about having a barn to gather all of their winter food in. Some of the animals store a little extra food for the winter. Some don't. They just trust in God to feed them. And Jesus says, aren't you not much more valuable than they? And then, of course, he ends this whole discussion... In Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. Everybody knows what all means. All these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Remember? Give us today our daily bread. Don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble or its own needs. So coming back to this verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. You know, the Bible says God is a very present help. He wants to be today's God. Not tomorrow's God, not yesterday's God, but the God of the here and now, who's helping me right now, who's providing everything I need for this day. My daily bread. And I think if every one of us on this phone line or on the internet tonight were honest with ourselves, you can look back over your whole life, there's never been a single day that God didn't provide your daily bread. King David says, I have never seen the righteous or their seed begging for bread. And by the way, bread speaks about necessity, it's talking about our daily needs, not our greeds. <laughs> Sometimes we get all bent out of shape because not God's not supplying all of my greeds. Oh, we have lots of wants, but a want is not the same thing as a need. And it doesn't say, give us this day our daily lobster. Now, you may not like lobster. You can fill in the blanks, but it's give us this day our daily bread. Lord, provide for me what I need. And Paul sums it up in Timothy, if you have a little bit of food and you have some clothes to wear, praise God. Be content. That's all we really need. And of course, God goes way beyond that. He's a good God. And he doesn't let us lack anything. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Moving along, verse 12. This is a biggie, and I'm not going to spend much time on this because we've given whole Bible studies on this. After we finish praying for our daily bread, we move right into a more critical need. That's our spiritual need for forgiveness. And this is a conditional thing meaning it hinges on something else. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Notice again, this is in the plural. Not forgive me my sin, but forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors debtors. And you can look at different intercessors in the Bible, Moses, Daniel, Ezra. When they went before God and prayed and interceded, they confessed the sins of their whole nation. They 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 said, Lord, we have sinned. We have strayed. Please forgive us. And so I think This drives home again the fact that we're all in this together. We're one body. We're one holy nation. We're one bride of Christ. And we need to be praying corporately, praying for one another. And in the following verses, verses 14 and 15, Jesus makes it absolutely clear That our forgiveness is conditional on our forgiving other people. If you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that's why, coming back to verse 12, the, the prayer has to be this complete request. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I think implied there is even a prayer to God, Lord, help me to forgive others. I understand that my forgiveness is dependent upon my ability to forgive what other people have done to me. And if you've not had a struggle yet with forgiving somebody who's done you wrong, you've probably not had much done wrong to you. Because it's not easy. Sometimes this is a real uh, process that we have to work through to come to a place where we can truly let go and forgive a person for whatever they've done. And God will allow us to go through situations where we're treated badly, unjustly, unfairly. People gossip about us. People do mean things against us. He allows us to go through that so that we can understand the depths of His forgiveness. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And what helps me is just to picture Christ on the cross, bloody, beaten beyond recognition, the sinless Son of God, bearing all the sins of mankind, and yet, as He hangs there on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, forgive us our debts, our sins, our trespasses, as we forgive our debtors. And I like that word, debt. It helps us to understand, I think, in a different way, the whole concept of forgiveness. When we sin, we owe a debt to God. And Jesus gave several powerful parables, especially the one of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. He was forgiven uh, a huge debt, like a million dollar debt that he owed his master. He was pardoned and released from that whole debt. And then he turns around and grabs one of his fellow servants by the throat and refuses to forgive him for a tiny little debt. Lord, forgive us our debts and help us to forgive others that We may feel owe us something. You know, when you have a debtor, you're feeling like they owe you something. Well, we need to come to a place where nobody owes us anything. Whether it's money or financial things, or maybe you feel like they owe you an apology, or they owe you better treatment or whatnot. Just let it go. Forgive the debt. And cancel it. Now, let's finish this up. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation. You know, only recently have I come back to pray this more often. Sometimes we think, oh, well, I'm so strong now, I'll never be tempted anymore. Oh, really? <laughs> James says we are often dragged away and enticed by our own carnal, selfish desires into a whole array of temptations. And let us not forget, the next part of the prayer goes on to say, deliver us from evil, or more specifically, deliver us from the evil one. Well, one of Satan's favorite tactics is temptation. He's the tempter. He likes to put bait in front of us to entice us, to draw us away from God and God's plan. We need to be proactively praying, Lord, don't let me fall into temptation. Do not even let me be led into tempting situations. Do not lead us into temptation, but rather, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, when we're tempted, God will provide a way out. He'll provide a way of escape from that temptation. And coupled with that is another prayer. We should be praying regularly, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. There's a very real acknowledgement here that there is a devil, and he's up to no good. He's evil. He's the evil one. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we should not be ignorant of Satan's devices. And if you think you're so holy and so spiritual and so full of the Holy Ghost now, that the devil's through messing with you, my friend, you are deceived. (laughs) You better open up your eyes, because he's just waiting for his next opportunity. You know, recently, I was really studying over carefully the opening chapters of Genesis, and we did some Bible studies on that. And you'll remember right after Adam and Eve's fall in Genesis 3, in the very next chapter... We see how sin begins to explode and multiply, and here they have murder in their own household. Cain, their son, slays his brother Abel. And just before he went out into the field and killed his brother, God gave him a warning. God told Cain, Cain, why are you so downcast? Sin is crouching at the door. It's just sitting right there at the door, like a lion, ready to pounce on you. Sin is crouching at the door, but you must overcome it. Notice that. God told Cain, what what is about to do you in, you can overcome. I'm giving you the power to overcome that. And just quickly, I'm turning here to Genesis 4. Here's specifically what God told Cain. Um, Let me change this to NIV. Okay, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Very interesting. You must master it. So, God was telling Cain... This thing is right there, ready to swallow you up, but I've given given you the ability, if you choose to do right, I've given you the ability to overcome that thing. And so, we need to be very much aware of our own human frailty, our own human weakness, And we need to be praying regularly, Lord, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. In John 17, you don't need to go there, but when Jesus was praying that high priestly prayer, one of the things he specifically prayed for the disciples and all those who would believe in him was, Protect them by the power of your name, Father. Protect them. And in this dark day in which we find ourselves living on planet Earth, man, do we need to be protected and delivered from the evil one. All right. I promise you I'm going to finish quickly here. Final words of the prayer. Yours is the kingdom of and the power, and the glory forever. It brings it right around again in closing. This is all about God. This is not about you and me. This is about God. It's about His kingdom. It's about His power, and it's about His glory. Yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever ever. Sadly, if we're really honest, very often what we're saying in our heart, it's all about me. Mine is the kingdom. Mine is the glory. The world needs to see my greatness. The world needs to hear my greatness. And of course, that's all a bunch of foolishness. This isn't about us. The glory belongs to God. The kingdom belongs to God. The power belongs to God. And what I see here in the closing of this prayer is something of a warning. It's it's not about me. It's all about God from start to finish. Our Father who art in heaven. And right down to the closing of this prayer Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Don't let me grab any of it for myself. The scriptures are very clear. God will not share his glory with another. And there have been too many examples, both in scripture and in modern days, of great men and great women who... Finally crossed over that line and said, you know what? I'm going to take some of this glory for myself. I'm going to build a kingdom for myself. And it's always to their detriment and their destruction. Remember in Genesis 11, what happened at the Tower of Babel? They wanted to build a kingdom for themselves. They wanted to build a tower that reached heaven. They wanted a heavenly kingdom. The only problem is it was for their own name and for their own glory. It says very specifically there in Genesis 11, let us make a name for ourselves. And sadly, that's the motive behind a lot of ministry, so-called, that's going on in the earth today. And I'm not trying to be critical of anyone But I'm also telling you what the Lord has clearly shown me. He gave me a vision several years ago when I was down in Honduras that all these kingdoms of Babel, the Babylon kingdoms that have this one thing in common, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to get the glory for ourselves. God showed me very clearly in a vision. He's going to bring all that down, just as he did at the Tower of Babel it's all coming down in confusion. And we need to pray this prayer daily, regularly, reminding ourselves thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. It's all yours. It's all about you, Lord. It's not about me. You, O oh God, have all the power. Therefore, you get all the glory. And I was noticing a similarity between this prayer and a prayer that King David prays in the Old Testament. And I'm going to finish with this. It's found in First Chronicles 29 and from verse 10... Onwards. First Chronicles 29.10 Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord, God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth, is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. And, of course, the final word in the Lord's Prayer is the way we end our prayers, Amen. And good to remind ourselves what we mean when we're saying Amen to our prayers. Very often, we'll pray this long, elaborate prayer and finish it with Amen, and no sooner have we gotten up from prayer and we're contradicting everything we just prayed. We prayed all these high and lofty things, and then as we're going about our business, we're saying, Well, God's never going to help me, God's not going to answer that prayer, um, I'm always going to be sick, I'm always going to be defeated. And really what we're saying is not amen, because amen means, so shall it be. That's literally what we're saying. So when we finish our prayers, we're finishing by declaring, what I've just asked God for is going to come to pass. And that's why I can glorify Him. That's why I can praise Him. In other words, it's true. It's really going to happen because the God that I've prayed to is a faithful God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Praise the Lord. Were were you all able to hear the song at the beginning? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm not sure how, how the sound was, but um, I can't get that out of my head. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. May God help us to fix our eyes on heaven, on heavenly things. May God help us To put our affection on the Father who is in heaven. On the kingdom that is in heaven. And while we're here on earth, let us keep praying and believing, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. heaven. Praise the Lord. Okay. God bless everyone. Thanks for joining us. God bless you all.